Join me, Professor RPG, as I sit down with friends, colleagues, and special guests as we reminisce and discuss role-playing games that left their mark on us. Expect to see all sorts, from western style to Japanese and even tabletop. So stay a while and listen, and let us trigger those memories of tales long since completed. Relive that fantasy you hold dear, and come along with us, adventurer, on this quest into the past. Welcome to the RPG University. Classes in session, and the dark hour looms. The smell of blood lingers heavy in the air as the bell tolls on the clock tower. This week, I'm joined by the community manager and storyteller extraordinaire from the Pandemonium Institute, featured on No Rolls Bard, the one, the only, Mr. Benjamin Burns. How's it going, Ben? Oh, it's going very well, thank you. The weather's lovely in England, which is uncommon, so uh, (laughs) I'm feeling particularly energized today. Excellent, excellent. Well, completely opposite of the atmosphere that you usually uh, work in, telling stories with Blood in the Clock Tower. But before we get to Clock Tower and everything, and how you run stories and whatnot, um, I want to hear a bit about yourself. So, like, what is your nerd story that brought you to the Institute in the first place? What got you into games? Um... I've always had a fascinate like a fascination with games. Like even when I was a little kid, I used to make p- probably terrible board games, and I had uh, I was fortunate to have a a father and a grandmother who were very tolerant for my endless requests for them to try out my really shitty games. <laughs> and I was always fascinated by computers as a kid as well. So when I was maybe three or four, my dad took me to what we call a car boot sale in England, which is like. Well, it's where you, you sell stuff out of the trunk. Everyone parks mm-hmm. up and they just open up the trunk of their car and that's their like, store. I assume you have something similar over there, like a swap yeah. meet or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, my dad bought me a battered up old Atari XEGS, which was the last 8-bit computer that Atari made. And it had a top loader that you could put Atari cartridges in and it had a tape deck that you could load games from tape onto. And those are my earliest memories of um, of like gaming and... It just kind of... I was acutely aware, even at a young age, that the fact that you can represent the attributes of a human or a wizard or a a monster or something with a bunch of numbers Mm -hmm. is like just this end... It's just endless possibilities right there. There is so many things you can do about it. You want to represent an incredible soccer player? Assign a bunch of numbers to his ability to shoot powerfully and accurately and blah, 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 blah. You want to have a really powerful wizard? Give him a bunch of spells that do D this many damage or, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that. And I just kind of... that That fascination's never gone away from me. And and, I, and I've always had a love of not just the fantasy side of it, but also the organizational side of it. I'm fascinated by tournament brackets and league tables and things like that. And so these those all kind of cumulatively come together into what is now a, an adult who loves fantasy gaming and loves competitive gaming. Uh, so uh, that's awesome. I've, I would never got into... So my like first system was the NES. That like that's where I started. So even though I'm I, I'm aware in of the Atari stuff, it always still blows my mind that games could be played via cassette tape. Because like I remember cassette tapes, they were very much like music things to me. But writing and storing data still blows my mind. Yeah, I mean it's it's analog, right? And today we think of um, we think of of 
digital gaming. Well, I've just called it. I've, yeah. I've instinctively <laughs> referred to it as digital gaming because it is all digital now. But uh, funnily enough, storing data on tape is actually still quite popular in certain niche industries because it's an incredibly cheap form of data storage and you can store a surprisingly large amount of data on a tape so it is still getting used a fair bit that's it, it's wild nowadays and but like how did what i guess surprises me the most like with com, the like the gaming aspect of games on tape is was there like a read and write kind of situation like you didn't save to the tape did you oh no there was no saving. Okay. <laughs> there was no saving on an 8-bit Atari. I mean, uh, you, ever so occasionally, you might have a game that would give you a passcode that you mm-hmm. could type into then. Uh, but no, it took forever to load. Literally, it would be like, you put the tape in, you type run and press enter, and then your Atari would just start going, <laughs> making loads of noises, and you go away and have your dinner. And then when you came back, if you were lucky, it had loaded. And if you were unlucky, it had okay. fucked up, and you had to start the process again. <laughs> uh, but you, <laughs> as a kid, you have what seems to be an endless amount of time and tolerance for things like that. And I, mean, I was just yeah. amazed that I could boot up a game and, and be a football manager or a barbarian warrior or something. I, I couldn't care less. I had other toys that I could play with while it loaded in. Uh, the the in-between toy toys, I, I remember that well. Um so uh, one thing I when I first reached out to you, you mentioned that you were also a big D and D fan, dig a uh, big tabletop RPG fan. So like, what was that progression and evolution from your Atari days and kind of the video game aspect into D and D and tabletop role playing in, in general? Well, um, I mean, I'm going to get a little bit serious on your ass now. Uh, but Go for I, it. I, my, my childhood wasn't all uh, wonderful PC gaming experiences. Mm-hmm. I did have uh, some. I had a pretty, I had a relatively grim childhood at certain points during it, and I won't go into the details of it. But what I, what I quickly found was that by immersing myself in the fictional problems of an of a party of adventurers, be it Cloud and his and his crew in Final Fantasy VII, or a group of D and D adventurers that I'd randomly rolled up on. Uh, uh, you know, um, pool of radiance or something like that. Uh, I found that that was an excellent escapism, and that to immerse mm-hmm. myself in these fictional issues, it was a good way to sort of get away from the very real problems that I was facing in my day-to-day life. And uh, and I think that's probably. I think if you go up to anyone who regularly plays pen and paper <laughs> RPGs like Dungeons and Dragons, like Call of Cthulhu or whatever, and and you you said that to them, I think almost all of them would say yeah. I, I totally get yeah. that because that's why I'm here as well. My, you know, even if it's perhaps that their life is boring and this is exciting for them, maybe they're part of a marginalized group and the ability to play as as a as a, a tiefling or something is is enjoyable for them because they're not going to be judged for being a marginalized group in you know in forgotten realms or whatever. Mm-hmm. All of us are just doing this for escapism. Even if we're just escaping boredom, it's still escapism, right? Hundred percent and that's one of the things that's been so endearing like that has so endeared the rpg be it video games or tabletop to me and having recorded over a hundred episodes of the show now it's how much not even just tabletop but rpgs in general have served as like you said that escape that safety net that kind of like warm blanket to help people through difficult times in their lives or situations it's um, I think it's a unique that 
ability to escape into someone else into a fantasy world and and deal with issues there where you are geared with magic spells and all sorts of things is is so interesting and unique about the rpg genre that i think i just love so so much about it and i hear so frequently like you said yeah absolutely and the truth is that um unfortunately as much as we might not want it to be the case in real life a lot of the time you're not going to win yeah a lot of the time you're going to have to compromise a lot of the time you're not a hero and no hero is going to come to rescue you but in in a, in a final fantasy world or in a D world there is, there's always a solution you know that you're on the road to success you know mm. that you're going to be able to work through these issues and there's something very cathartic about that i think yeah I found, because I've used RPGs to get through issues, like, uh, heartache and issues and and struggles and um, tough patches in my life as well. And it's one thing I've always taken advantage, like, being able to, like, think through, okay, how am I going to approach this, like, trap or this big bad evil in, like, a and d game or something? Like, those problem-solving skills, while the the methods might be different that analytical and kind of okay stop think about what you're trying to do like i feel like i was able to really bring some of those the the strategic thinking i guess into my real my real life my day-to-day when i'm dealing with difficult difficulties um but yeah sometimes you just kind of have to buck up and be your own hero um but. Yeah, absolutely. And and you it's not something that you can easily it's not a yeah. hobby that you can easily engage in alone as well, right? Mm-hmm. So not only are you there dealing with problems, but you're also working together with a group of people, you pr- presumably your friends. And uh you know, I remember like 10 years ago, I was going through this really messy breakup. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you're now you're now you're, no, you're my counselor. We're going to I'm going to yeah, I'm going to ramble at you. Here's Gra- Grandpa Ben's going to tell you a story. Uh it, 10 years ago, I was going through this really messy breakup and um I got kicked out of my house by this girl and I had to move back home with parents, which is frustrating when you're in your mid 20s and you want to, you know, you want to strike out on your own. And I was just so down, and I'd barely spent any time with any of my friends because when you're going through something like that, you're not exactly fun to be around. And also, you just don't, it consumes all mm-hmm. of your time and energy. And so, all of that was, I was completely heartbroken. I was massively dejected. And Final Fantasy XIV Reborn had just come out. It had just been, you know, when they remade that oh, MMO yeah. and it started getting plaudits. And I remember I was like, I didn't have a job, I didn't have much money, but I did have a PC and an internet connection so one of my friends bought for me final fantasy 14 reborn (laughs) and i just completely immersed myself in that world for like a whole month and every day i was hanging out with these guys who i was learning to be friends with again because we'd not spoken because of how much of a state Mm -hmm. i was in and and completely immersed myself in this fictional world and their fictional characters and my fictional character and i just i remember so distinctly just how like at, at that moment I became very aware of just how incredibly therapeutic an RPG can be because that game absolutely saved me. Yeah. What was your character? I have to know now. Uh, oh God! Do you know what? I haven't played it in about <laughs> nine and a half years. Let me have a quick look. It was the what? It was the one that's got like bunny ears. Okay. Viera. Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, and I was a bard. Oh, nice. That. But Bard's like a prestige class in that, isn't it? So I remember I was working towards it, I think. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, bards are wild, especially nowadays, because like you can legitimately play and perform on the instrument you choose. So there'll be like yeah. concerts that people put on with their their characters. Wild oh, stuff. Yeah. You used to be able to do that in Lord of... We presumably still can do that in Lord of the Rings Online as well. I think that was mm-hmm. the first game that ever did that. Because I remember me... I, I, I play a bunch of instruments and I had a, like a MIDI guitar and a MIDI keyboard. Mm-hmm. So I would actually go into the wilderness on Lord of the Rings Online and play like the Power Rangers theme to people while they were fighting Yo, monsters. let's go! <laughs> Surprisingly, a lot of them didn't appreciate it. And I can't imagine why. Was basically it's classic music. It, it's... I love that music. Speaking of total random side tangent, have you watched uh, Once and Always, uh, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers special? I haven't. I'm not. I'm not like a big Power Rangers. Well, I mean, every every kid of my age was a Power Rangers fan growing up, but uh, I can't say I have. It was. It brought back like Billy and Zach. Like it was like the original. A lot of members of the original team. It was as a mm. person who grew up in with the original rangers and everything like that it was very it was a nostalgic hug um it was it was very nice but um so i'm one thing i'm curious about with being kind of a D &D player over in england and everything did you guys over there have the whole satanic panic associated with D D like we did in here in the west like in the states no okay not at all i mean the uk Obviously, religion in the UK is interesting because it's kind of it's kind of tied in with the monarchy in a lot of ways. Um, because the obviously the two the two major um, what's the word I'm looking for here De- denominations of Christianity mm-hmm. are in England at least Catholicism, which is I think the second most popular one, and then there's Anglicanism, which I think is it's kind of like what you guys call Episcopalian, I think. Um, but in, in the UK, mm. the head of the church is the king. So our king is the, <laughs> is basically our pope as well. Uh, and there is a lot of... There's a lot of political factionalism tied up in certain parts of the UK between Protestants and Catholics. And it's caused a lot of a lot of trouble in in northern ireland and there's Mm -hmm. we still bear a lot of scars from that kind of thing and so basically what i'm getting at is uh there's enough there's enough shit going on (laughs) in this country without involving (laughs) gary gygax and some dice uh but but i think the uk in general is a much more um christ i'm not doing good in my words today am i uh, secular society than the US. I appreciate US is a very big place, and I'm generalizing here, but certainly there is a higher percentage of the population in the US who consider themselves practicing Christians than there are in in uh, in the UK. There are also a lot of uh, quote unquote practicing Christians who don't as- act very Christian like uh, here in the West or here in the US. Um, but that's a yeah. whole other thing. Uh, let them fight about Dungeons and Dragons, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's kind of weird that they got... Uh, it, it's odd that they had an issue with it, because ultimately the vast majority of D&D campaigns are about uh, about a, a group of ragtag different people, but they're all united by a desire to, to do good and save the innocent. And then they go off on that crusade and help mm. people and oftentimes defeat demons and witches and all the things that they don't like. But the simple truth is that... Um, you know, picking on D and D players is a, is is not a million miles away from picking on 
women or picking on Muslims yeah. or pick, it's just it's just a group that is different to what to what these people know and therefore they're gonna try and eradicate it because it's a simple philosophy for simple people, right? Yeah, it's I don't I don't get it, but it's um I mean I mean I was I wasn't born yet for the initial that whole campaign against Dungeons and Dragons, but I was very much around and cognizant when they did it to Pokemon and how it was devil creatures and et cetera, et cetera. But <laughs> yeah. What? Oh yeah. You, I didn't know that. Oh yeah. Like there were like churches and stuff, like how Pokemon was evil and like tempted. Oh, it was, yeah, it was like satanic panic 2.0. Um, it was, it was wild. Cause you dealt with monsters and what are demons, if not monsters and <laughs> Carrying them around in your pocket? You're carrying around the devil in your pocket. Do you know um, what? If demons look like Pikachu, then hail Satan. I'm, yeah. I'm up for that. Let's, have like, Let's go. Oh, okay. Sounds way more interesting. I mean, Growlithe's pretty cute. I, I wouldn't mind demon Growlithe. I mean, that's cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've got a little Meowth already. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. Uh, yeah, it's, it's wild. But so... Besides D and D, have you played any other like tabletop games or tabletop RPGs? Oh yeah, I'm I'm obsessed. I'm really honestly, it's it's like it's up there for me as one of my uh, my biggest hobbies mm-hmm. and my biggest love. And I I played a lot of systems, and very, I'm very fortunate that in my position, I've got a lot of I've got a lot of friends who are in this hobby, and I've got a lot of people who are happy to have me run. Uh, different systems for them so i'm able to to stretch my rpg muscles in a way that i appreciate a lot of folks can't because they're perhaps only know three or four people who are interested in rpgs and those three or four people are only interested in fifth fifth ed D or pathfinder or whatever it is that they play mm-hmm. but yeah I, i've got to play a lot of stuff and i'm very very grateful for that yeah i i'm i want to expand out more from just D. um like I really want to try Vampire the Masquerade sometime. Cthulhu. I want to do Cyberpunk. Like, I, I, those, there are so many other systems I want to try specifically because, like, especially after all the crazy crap that Wizards pulled in the past six months, six to eight months, it's like, I, I'm, I'm cool with branching out. Um, so if you have any recommendations, I would love to, uh, to hear. How long have you got? I'll, <laughs> I'll recommend shit for you for the rest of this interview if you like. <laughs> I'm like a I'm like a Mormon for some of these systems. Like I will be I will be at uh, conventions and someone will mention RPGs and I'll be like, "Have you played Genesis? Can I tell you about Genesis?" And uh, I'm I am really obsessed with Genesis. I will I will sing about Genesis all day every day. Tell me a bit about that one because I'm not I'm not familiar with Genesis. So I'd love to hear about one that I don't necessarily know anything about. Okay, well Genesis is a um, is a what they call a uh, an agnostic system. So it's like a classless, settingless system that you can apply to whatever you want. So if you want to run your standard fantasy fair, it gives the GM the tools to create what that game's equivalent of classes and races are. Uh, so that you can, you as the GM, build the classes mm-hmm. and races for your system. If you want to run a vampire type thing, you can build a bunch of vampire clans. If you want to run a cyberpunk thing, there's rules in there for hacking and stuff like that. So it attempts to be a kind of one-size-fits-all system. But what I what is really cool about it is instead of instead of like having a, a system where you roll numbered dice, it actually comes with its own dice, and 
to keep things simple in this explanation, the dice basically have successes and failures on them, and then they have like advantages and disadvantages. Mm-hmm. So instead of you saying I shoot the guy, and then the GM says, "Okay, roll against that guy's armor class," you've beat the armor class. Now roll some damage. The way it will often work in Genesis is it'll be, I would like to shoot this guy. And so you roll the your dice pool of dice based on the stats that you have. And it might come up that you've uh, succeeded massively, but with a series of disadvantages. And the GM's job is to then interpret that. So I say, yeah, you've hit him in the shoulder, he's down. But unfortunately, your gun's jammed. Or it could go the other way around. It could be that you failed massively, but with many advantages. So it might be, well, you missed by a mile, but but because you've rolled a bunch of advantages you actually missed and hit the door behind him and that door's now slammed shut and he can't escape and so what you end up having is like these cinematic oh. experiences rather than a simple you do damage you know do damage it's actually much more nuanced and therefore you can run you can the, the action scenes are, are more entertaining and the dialogue is a lot more cinematic and, and has a lot more depth to it this sounds this is the one by fantasy flight it is. It's actually, um, if you played their modern, um, I think it's called Edge of the Empire, the Star Wars system, uh, it's basically the dice system that they used for that, but after they'd released Edge of the Empire, they then extrapolated it and made it into a, a con- content agnostic kind of system. Interesting. Yeah, and for those of you listening, it's spelled G-E-N-E-S-Y-S. So it's not spelled like normal Genesis, it's spelled cool. Yeah, and they're about to release um, a book for it that lets you play Genesis in the Twilight Imperium uh, setting. So, oh. I'm a, are you familiar with Twilight Imperium? I, I am. I have I have not yet played it, but I am well aware of it. And it's one of those things that when I get when I get my um, new board game table, I want to pick up and try and get to table. So. Yeah, well, they've released books for uh, for a lot of their. IPs. So if you like Android Netrunner, the card game, there's a book Mm-mm. so you can play in that universe. There's a book so you can play in the Keyforge universe. Oh, which wow. Which is a, a TCG that folks enjoy. And do you know what? I'm going to stop yeah. now because really, these guys <laughs> should be paying me for what I'm doing at this point. There's no fucker out there has heard of Genesis. Nobody except for me is playing Genesis. So yeah, get in touch, Fantasy Flight. Well, that sounds awesome, but spe- well, let's talk instead about a company that does pay you to talk about their stuff. A little, <laughs> a little great segue setup, by the way. You really set that one up for me. Um, but Pandemonium Institute with a little game in a big box known as Blood on the Clock Tower. So, what is Blood on the Clock Tower, Community Manager Ben? Oh, what is Blood on the Clock Tower? Uh, sorry, I thought you meant that. I thought I thought you meant the whole sentence. What is Ben? I was like, what's me? Uh, but no, we can yeah, go in there the too. Tower. Let's let's dive right in. What is Ben? <laughs> what is Ben? Uh, Blood on the Clock Tower is a supernatural murder mystery game uh, for five to twenty players plus one GM. Uh, it's it's a it's a social deduction game, and folks who've played games like Werewolf or Mafia. Uh, or Town of Salem will will recognize a lot of its mechanics. Uh, it is a game where a small number of evil players attempt to hide amongst a large number of good players. 
Uh, but crucially, the way it differs from most of the other games in the genre is that, first and foremost, death is not the end. There's no elimination. When you die, your role is not revealed. You still take part in discussion. You still close your eyes at night. And you still win or lose with your team. So good players can continue to help the town from beyond the grave with their opinions and knowledge. And evil players can continue to bluff and poison the well of information from beyond the grave. And speaking of poisoning... Players can become poisoned or drunk in Blood on the Clock Tower, in which case their abilities don't work properly. So if you're a character that learns information in the night and you've been poisoned, I will wake you up and I'll lie to you. I'll feed you false information. And so that two combination of things, the fact that not all information is trustworthy and nobody is ever eliminated, means that everybody is playing all the time and the storyteller, the GM of the game, has to take an active role in running the game they have to if they're going to lie to someone they have to choose what lie they're going to say yeah this this perhaps has one of the coolest presentations of of any game i own honestly so a couple months back after watching games being played i picked it up i had to i was very excited and opening it up popping the the tokens and everything it's like this is a massive tome it's the grimoire you connect it like it it's it has so much character to it that outside of simply the incredible amount of options and variety you have in terms of the the roles people can be, you have alchemist, amnesiac, artist, atheist, balloonist, bounty hunter, king, librarian, lycanthrope, magician, tea lady, town crier, like all these. So, and those are just for the townsfolk. That says nothing about all the other versions. It's like, what a wild, wild game that the creators and and you have all like put together and like watching you run games. So my first exposure was to this game was through watching the no rules bard. It's a tabletop YouTube channel. Highly recommend it on YouTube that plays board games. And they did this big blood in the clock tower series where you ran it, Ben, um, you were one of the storytellers and that's actually where I first saw you and the game and everything. And, Watching this, I then proceeded to watch more reviews like Shut Up and Sit Down. It's like just so much praise for this game. And watching it, what really piqued my interest as a, as a fellow dungeon master in a long-running game and stuff was that storyteller aspect and how you could lie and kind of twist the narrative. What's it like being the storyteller and kind of keeping track of everything going on? So, in my opinion, the storyteller role in Blood on the Clock Tower is the most fun role. Because unlike, say, if you're running a game of Werewolf or if you're refereeing a game of basketball or something like that, Mm -hmm. unlike that, you are actually making decisions. Now, you can't do whatever you want. The decisions you... you, it It is mandated by the rules of the game when you may or may not make decisions. But those decisions that you make have far reaching consequences. And... And consequently, running Blood on the Clock Tower is much more like being a dungeon master than being a referee. In much the same way that you, uh, you know, you might as a dungeon master, you you know that uh, this this evil necromancer that you're playing has has five or six spells that he can use against the enemy. Now you're not breaking the rules by casting those spells, but you do get to choose which spells he casts and when he casts them, and that therein lies the fun of being a dungeon master because you are actively participating in the telling of this story and blood on the clock tower is very much the same 
because the the decisions that you make are going to influence the way people see things and they're going to they're going to influence the strategies that both the good and the evil team uh use i'll give you and i'll give you your listeners yeah. an example um blood on the clock tower is played by people sitting in a circle and there's a townsfolk a good character called the empath and their ability is a very simple ability you learn how many of the people sat next to you are evil so you'll always be sat next to two people and you learn how many of them are evil and you'll get a number between zero one or two now imagine for a second that you're the empath and you're sat next to one evil person and so the the storyteller the guy running the game he should wake you up and show you the number one because you're sat next to one evil player however you've been poisoned by the poisoner tonight and so the storyteller is going to wake you up and he's going to lie to you he's not going to say one because that's the truth so he's going to have to choose whether to say zero or two. Now that decision has far-reaching consequences. If he wakes you up and tells you that zero of your neighbours are evil, then you're going to erroneously believe that one of them is good when they're not, but you will correctly learn that the other one is good. If he wakes you up and tells you that two of your neighbours are evil, you'll know that the evil player is evil, <laughs> but you'll also incorrectly believe that the other good player is evil. And, given the numbers in Blood on the Clock Tower, you're likely to think that the vast majority of the evil team is surrounding you. Both of those decisions are going to massively change what you say to people. They're going to have a huge consequence on what kind of strategy the evil team takes. Do they abandon their one evil player who you know is evil because you got a two? Do they try and frame him for things so that the attention goes away from them? If you've got a zero, fantastic! Let's give him all of the credibility. Let's pile it on him because you already think he's good. And and th this is what even now I'm getting excited talking about it, just thinking about these scenarios and that that kind of excitement and passion. That's what makes us GMs, right? Yeah. This is this is the fucking good stuff. This is what we get out of it. Uh, and th that's why I love Blood on the Clock Tower so much because you can watch that thing unfold and you know as a storyteller that you had a you had a hand in this awesome narrative yeah it, it's almost like condensing a multiple week or month-long sessions of like a tabletop rpg into a single single night of because you have all the people having their various roles and abilities and kind of the deduction and really kind of tr trying to track down the evil the, the evil ones like the demons or the minions and the demons and minions trying to keep themselves hidden it's there is like every game i have watched be it um like the world championship games you ran which i didn't even know there was like a championship of blood on the clock tower until a couple weeks ago when i start like just wanted to watch more games but they're so tense and exciting to watch like it's so much fun to also watch everything go yeah, down yeah it's definitely a spectator sport uh, and I think that's that's been shown by just how popular No Rolls Bard plays Blood on the Clock Tower has become. I mean, most of those videos have got over a hundred thousand views, which is pretty mind blowing to me that a hundred thousand people are watching <laughs> me do something. But uh, but yeah, it is. It makes for a great spectator sport because it is a story. It's a it's an every game is a noir murder mystery or a supernatural horror show. Every single game has villains and heroes. Every game has bumbling idiots that that screw up and people that overcome the odds and and become more than the sum of their parts it's such a it's such a cool narrative every time it's never boring yeah it, it, and just you you can never predict how things will go um 
from like the beginning, like from turn to turn, it's I've there's there always seems to be some good twists in there uh, that just makes me keep watching. But speaking of with the the no rules barred plays blood on the clock tower, what was kind of the production like for that? Like the set that was produced and put together and and running the effects and your the season two kickstarters doing very well, but like. What was a recording or like a session of that? Was it a lot vastly different than just playing with your friends? I guess. I mean, it literally was playing with my friends. That's yeah. exactly what it was because I, you know, th- it was like the the first time we went into the studio to record. We'd already played together like I don't know twenty times or something online, and that's mm-hmm. just the times that we've recorded what we've played. There've been plenty of times when I've played with those guys, and it's not been recorded. But um, yeah, I think the main difference of, of playing it in a film studio is that um, there's three cameras in front of you all the time, uh, and uh, yeah, the lights in your face and stuff, and uh, and there is quite a fair bit of stopping and starting. Not to ruin the magic, but no. uh, these guys are like they're all massive nerds who are in No World's Bard, and they're all really passionate about games and so there were a lot of times when just like in a real game of blood on the clock tower or a real D session everyone starts shouting over each other and the director <laughs> would have to be like cut okay we couldn't hear what adam said can we all can you all just say that again but like not say it all at the same time and so there have been times when we had to pull back and like remake our points and stuff like that uh, and obviously the the changing from set stage to the room where me and tom talk or Mm -hmm. all of those things the transitions take a while so a game that would normally have taken about 90 minutes to two hours does usually take like over three hours because of all the having to reset up here and go over there and okay everyone now it's the night phase everyone close your eyes then you know all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. it does it does make things take a bit longer uh but it's all worth it because that set's really fucking cool and a lot of fun to sit in it it it, just the the um relationship you all you you all have with one another it, it's so fun to watch and um i i'm curious one of the cool things that you introduced with the the final episode of season one and kind of the premise of the season two are brand new classes brand new roles um never kind of before seen and you you all tried the vizier so as a storyteller it being your first time with this brand new class what did you think of the vizier um in in a gameplay scenario uh so for the benefit of anyone who doesn't know what the vizier is it's a character and it's quite it has quite a rare quality in that everybody knows you're that character so obviously the central premise of most social deduction games is you don't know who's on the good or evil team you only know your own character everyone else could be anything for all you know whereas the vizier is an evil character and part of their ability is that immediately the guy running the game has to tell everybody that this person is the vizier and in exchange for that lack of anonymity they're given obscene power uh they can force through nominations and executions uh and i love it i absolutely love that um i i love the ability to play what we like to call outed evil in blood on the clock tower because while there are many many strengths to uh to obviously concealing what you are as an evil player you almost gain more strength when everybody thinks you're evil and you've stopped trying to disprove that notion because then the real power comes. You can say whatever you want and people will be hanging on every word. Is he? Is that the truth? Is he trying to double bluff us? Or is he, is he, is he saying that because he wants us to think this when in fact this is the case? And you can really manipulate people 
from a perspective from a from the vantage of outed evil so i absolutely love characters that that get to be especially evil and out yeah. and out evil and i have to say i, I love the fact that it was laurie that drew the vizier um i thought that was perfect but so with the season two um i had a couple couple role ideas i want to i want to throw by you to see so you have the lunch lady minion who can feed the recently deceased person to someone in the town poisoning them for a night yeah that's that's interesting but what but what's the what's the function of feeding the person what what does that person do well, it was whoever, basically, like, if a person gets executed or killed, the lunch lady can use that, the recently deceased person, and just poison someone. And I just think a lunch lady is funny. Ah, uh, well, I think if you were gonna, because at the moment, what you've got is a poisoner. It's just a poisoner, right? Uh, a poisoner who has, someone has to be executed, or someone has to die. But uh, if you uh, want to tie true. in that recently deceased person, maybe you should go with uh, each night, um, select... Uh, a living neighbor of the most recently dead player they are poisoned that way you've you've got um that dead players being included in some mechanical way and you're also giving the good team an opportunity to figure out that the lunch lady's in play there you go and and my other one is the university student or what, basically the partier that if he becomes if he's selected by someone like the sailor to become drunk he gets to wake up partially during the day to see someone do something not necessarily the result but then goes like because he's out late drinking and partying because he's a university student oh, okay interesting yeah i think that there's a bit of a danger by letting players open their eyes in the night um but what i would say is uh you could you could make sure that that doesn't cause any accidental rule breaks by simply waking them up uh, each night and telling them somebody that you've woken up tonight so if you have them at yeah. last in the night order, and you could be like, or even they could just point at someone, and you say yes or no based on whether or not they've woken up tonight. Yeah. I hope so. you don't mind me. Uh, <laughs> no, not you at all. Yeah, you you are the story. Like you know the game vastly more and have played it vastly more than I have. So I just like the idea uh, ideas of a an evil lunch lady and a drunk college student. Um. But yeah, I like how you've adapted. That that's good. So <laughs> now I'm curious, what would be what would be a fun job or something like a hilarious new role uh, of your choice? Like oh, what a, do you mean? Yeah, something that I've made up. Yeah, just a, what would be an incredibly like milkman? Like what would the milkman do? Like, well, I've, I've actually got... Um, this is not ready for public consumption yet, <laughs> but I have actually made my own script, my own homebrew script, uh, and it's a custom script based around one of my favourite TV shows of all time, Red Dwarf. So I can I can give you some characters yeah. from my Red Dwarf homebrew, if you like. Go for it. Okay. Uh, hit. Okay, let's see what have we got. We've got... Okay, I've got a minion called Mr. Flibble. Uh, and their ability is, until there are enough minions in play, each night select a player and a not-in-play minion. They become that evil minion. And then in brackets, no other minions. So, if it's a 15-player game, uh, we have one demon and Mr. Flibble. And each night, Mr. Flibble will point to a good player and they'll become 
a minion until there's enough minions. So it actually <laughs> lets the evil team wait and see who they think are emerging as the most uh, like trustworthy good players and then forcibly recruit them to the evil team. Very cool. Yeah, I quite like that. I think it's fairly original. Oh, yeah. No, that's... So it's a science fiction sitcom. I'm just reading up on uh, what Red Dwarf is. So yeah, Red Dwarf's a bit of a British institution. It's very popular over here, <laughs> but I don't think it's made its way across the pond. It's also um, qu- quaintly low budget, uh, and it's late '80s, early '90s low budget as well. So it's really, really, Ooh, really, really good, budget. really, <laughs> really classic. Um, I guess I'm I'm curious. Uh, when are you going to run a Genesis? Uh, themed game or a button tower genesis game so uh actually it's funny you mentioned this uh i don't know if i'm supposed to keep my mouth shut about this or not but uh do you know what i'll, I'll ask for forgiveness rather than permission uh i don't know if you're familiar with uh tyler nafe but he's part of off meta who are another another YouTube channel that make uh, Clock Tower content. And he's actually uh, used the Blades in the Dark system, which you might be familiar with, mm-hmm. uh, and created his own RPG system. And he's going to run that for me and some other players and turn it into like an actual play type podcast. And uh, oh, cool. the Blades in the Dark system is, is quite investigative. It's not really a combat-oriented system. Mm-hmm. And he, what he's done, it's such a cool idea, what he's come up with. Basically, uh, the players are part of a clandestine society called the Hands of the Clock Tower. And their job, their their group, goes from city to town uh, identifying and eradicating demons and their minions. And so we'll be uh, one of the various archetypes, and he's named the archetypes after characters in Clock Tower. So there's a slayer, and there's a professor, and, you know, all these kind of things. And we'll go into a place where we know there's demonic activity, and our job is to figure out which demon is in play, figure out what the minions are in in this town, and then eradicate the minions and demons before it's too late. But these minions and demons will be hiding as... So, a soldier who who frequents the tavern regularly, or a monk who lives at the old abbey, you know, these kind of things just like oh, they are cool. in Real Blue on the Clock Tower yeah, it's such an original idea and he's also added in the fact that um, I don't know if you're familiar with fabled characters in Blue on the Clock Tower, but they're kind of characters that exist outside of the game that can modify the rules, mm-hmm. and he's even added those things in uh, so we, we will when we do this, we will have to be seeking the aid of the hell's librarian who's a demon that we unfortunately have to use to eradicate other demons or uh the djinn who is a mystical creature that will grant us wishes but we need to be very careful what we wish for because it might come back to haunt us and things like that so it's already happening and it's uh it's yeah i'm really excited to play oh very cool that sounds really really neat um i'll be i'll have to follow them on twitter and uh keep my eyes open for that but but we are not the only ones that are really into blood and the clock tower fans of the game so we are going to go around the web to see what favorite memories and moments from your own games of clock tower might be we start off with user master Keith from reddit they say the first time my crew played a script with the marionette and i was the fangu and had a marionette sitting next to me 
I decided to tell the gambler sitting on the other side of me that she was the marionette in addition to informing my real marionette he was evil. Halfway through the game, I Fangu jumped to an outsider and went and told him what was going on. So on the final day, we had four people in an eight-person game effectively playing for the evil team. We won, and the S storyteller had to inform the gambler that she had in fact lost. The look on her face was priceless, and then she got a good laugh about it. Yeah, so that's that's an interesting situation. To go back to the beginning of it, um, the marionette is uh, a character in Blood on the Clock Tower who is on the evil team, but they don't know they are. They start off thinking they're a regular good character, uh, but the demon, who's essentially the evil team captain, knows who the marionette is. So if there's a marionette on the script, almost every evil player is, is somewhat incentivized to tell other people that they are actually the marionette. You can get half the good team working for you if you can convince them that they're actually the marionette. But of course, every time you pile another lie like that on top of your already <laughs> ever-encumbering <laughs> pile of lies, it can sometimes spectacularly implode in on itself. Uh, and that's why people love the marionette so much, because it really does make for, for um, epic victories and glorious defeats. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I'll have to... I'll have to try the marionette in, an, in my next game so you want to take the next one ben sure this is from epic wicked gnome which is a brilliant name i love it um i've had all sorts of late night escapades on the unofficial discord server faking twins with another good player to stay alive longer worked for a while and evil didn't want to kill one of us uh so that that's an that's an interesting there's a evil uh, character called the evil twin and their ability is that one good player is their good twin and the good team can't win while both of those players are alive. But if the good twin is executed first, the evil team wins. So everybody has to, at some point, deal with the twins, figure out which one is evil and execute them. Or they can't, or the good team can't win. So that actually opens up a lot of strategies for both the good and the evil team. For example, two evil players could claim to be the good twin and the other one be the evil twin and one of them will emerge victorious and it will make that one seem really really good which is useful but uh, these guys actually did it the other way around which is quite unusual uh, and two good players claimed that one of them was the evil twin because they knew that would force everyone to leave them alone for at least long <laughs> enough to get there because evil would evil would be happy for those guys to be uh, to be erroneously stating that one of them is evil and the good team would be afraid to take one of them out uh, so that was a very brave move, Epic Wicked Gnome. But given that you are an Epic Wicked Gnome, I'm not at all surprised that you made it. It is both Epic and a Wicked Devious Plan. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we have user Chaos Demon 4, spelled in Leet Speak from Reddit. They said, I was the Zambul once, faking, uh, once fake, claiming to be the sailor, and my minion, Devil's Advocate, fake, claimed to be the grandmother. They have protect. They have protection on me as often as they could. So if I ever didn't die, it was because I was a sailor, right? LOL. We also had a lunatic in the game who literally didn't realize they were the lunatic until the second to last turn because his fake minions, me and the real minion, played along and I kept killing who they chose. Laugh out loud, out loud, out loud. I won by visiting the goon on the final night, flipping their alignment, and they nominated the last alive town town member, uh, leading to our victory. It was frustrating for town because Zambul, you basically have to execute twice, so every player we executed would be executed again the next day. 
Plus, there was a bunch of protection roles like Devil's Advocate and the Tea Lady, among others. It was funny watching the town squirm, and they bought that I was the sailor. Wow, there, there is a lot of a lot of terminology in there. <laughs> to, to, I feel sorry for anyone who's never played Clocktime before hearing all of that. But what's what to break that down a little bit? Um, basically, what this person was saying was that. Um, they were the evil demon, but they were lying about being a good character called the Sailor. And part of the Sailor's ability is that they might not die when executed. But there's an, an evil minion character called the Devil's Advocate who can choose someone at night and they won't die if they're executed. So this person was happy that they were able to, to bluff being the Sailor because their minion uh, kept protecting them from death. Uh, which is always always nice when a plan comes together, and that I think really is kind of illustrative of of what's so fun about Clock Tower because it's a talking game, and you're encouraged to make these bold plays. And because everybody has a powerful character, there's no generic villager or werewolf or whatever. Um, you, getting those characters to work in synergy with one another is really really satisfying. And again, I can't help but make the D and D comparison, just like you mm -hmm. would do. In a in an RPG where you've got you know the squishy wizard who can shit out damage but can't take it, and you've got the big bad barbarian who'll stand in front of him while he fires his spells, and it, it's very much the same thing in in Blood on the Clock Tower. Yeah, one thing I've always been curious about is the re is the methodology or the mentality of the sailor not being able to die. Is it because like he goes out on his boat at night or something? Like is that uh, I. I yeah, I mean that's like what's that's the entirely... reasoning behind the sailor <laughs> that's, just that's not being able to, to decide. <laughs> that's for you to decide. Sailors are tough, uh, I suppose. I know that could be um... it too. It's like I was wondering, like, what your head canon was as to why the sailor just can't die. <clears throat> be we be intentionally avoid it. Uh, we like so a lot of the games in this genre. Uh, I'm sure you've noticed mm -hmm. are they kind of utilize the imagery of like a, a sleepy village in the in the heart of the woods in Victorian or medieval Europe, you know, they've got that kind of vibe, right? If you go play Town of Salem, it's very much uh, literally Salem, you know, an oldie-worldie mm -hmm. village in the middle of nowhere where people are lynching one another. Uh, and for Blood on the Clock Tower, Steve, the designer, and the rest of us uh, wanted for the players and the storyteller to be able to decide for themselves where the, the, the town of Ravenswood Bluff is. And you can actually see this in the design of the various scripts. So uh, the, the beginner script, Trouble Brewing, it does have the, uh, you know, the, the washerwoman and the, and the monk and all of those things that you might perhaps associate with that sleepy little village in the woods. But as you transition to the other scripts, all of a sudden you've got clockmakers and you've got tinkers and you've got people who perhaps hinted a slightly more... Um, uh, kind of clockwork uh, steampunk sort of vibe and the characters that are going to be coming in future expansions actually take that further and some of them uh, are themed very much around modern day uh, people and, and a much less sort of urban, um, a much less kind of woodland fantasy sort of vibe and you can see this in some of the experimental characters that we've already put out characters like the politician and the bounty hunter who aren't aren't really uh, you know quite as fantasy esque or oldie worldy as the other ones? So we've deliberately avoided headcanon because we want you to be able to ask that question that you've just asked and come up with your own answer. Nice. Yeah. He for me then he just he's like pieces out, peace out. You you we, you people are weird. I'm just getting on my boat. Um, just sails <laughs> into the I'm middle. Unless I'm too drunk. 
<laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, the next one is yours, sir. I was in a game of Trouble Brewing plus one, which is Trouble Brewing, but the storyteller gets to add one random roll of their choice. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I've never heard that before. Uh, at the convention, and they chose Vizier. Well, I've already gone over the Vizier, that's nice. Uh, this was right after the reveal, and not many of us had played it before. Uh, to give this some context, we revealed a new character, and that character was the Vizier, and we revealed it at our Clock Tower Con. Anyway, an investigator saw me, so I wasn't announced due to the jinx. Uh, that's going to take some explaining. I had a ton of fun day one going around claiming Vizier to a bunch of people who absolutely did not believe me. It was a lot of fun when I immediately forced an execution through to everyone's surprise. The game ended quickly the next day when my demon and I mistakenly believed that we had a Scarlet Woman and I forced the execution through on my own demon. <laughs> to be fair, there were two fortune teller yes pings on my demon and they were likely the only non-being non voted on that day. Yeah, so uh, so this guy uh, managed to uh, be involved in a very rare interaction where the outed evil character, Vizier, is actually not outed. Uh, so no one believed that they were really the vizier but unfortunately they found themselves in a situation where they had to use their own power to kill their own demon thus ending the game which is uh yeah it's beautiful when things like that happen and again again i can't help but make the uh the comparison to rpgs because that's that is one of the things that's most fun about uh ttrpgs you know uh, epic epic character deaths failings yeah wiping in the dungeon and going back as a party of relatives of the ones that were slain there to take take out the monster that killed your uncle or whatever like these are these are the the things that are fun about games that are this dynamic 100 percent, 100 percent. and thank you that one was from user yvh22b don't know if that means anything but thanks and lastly uh for around the web this week we have user i am not paranoid from reddit they say the last game I played was my group's second time on Bad Moon Rising. The evil time absolutely dominated to the point where the Poe used their charge kill and was and good was still trying to find Apuka. The last night happens and I announce that the last good team member, the grandmother, was killed by the godfather, the assassin, and the Poe all at once. The whole group goes wild because none of them suspected anyone on the evil team at all. And I think there's this kind of magic in a game where you can get lied to by a loved one, completely fail, and get beat into the ground and love it. If it hadn't been so late, they'd been ready to jump right back in for another round. Yeah, so that's a lot of... Um, Bad Moon Rising is one of the three, uh, I guess you could say, sets of characters that come with the game. So there's Trouble Brewing, which is a, a simple set of characters for beginners. And then there's two intermediate sets, Bad Moon Rising and Sects and Violets. And Bad Moon Rising is by far the most chaotic of them, and it's uh, it's a script where you have to be you have to be willing to die or kill other people in order to get useful information if you're on the good team, and so it, it's actually one of the easiest ones for evil to hide in, and it often ends in uh, epic, crazy three four <laughs> people die in a night and boom the game's over kind of situations, and if that's your cup of tea and it very much is my cup of tea, uh, it can be a lot of fun. I'm curious, like, what's your favorite, what's your personal favorite to play as? I, or do you strictly stay with uh, Storyteller? <clears throat> no, I love to play. Uh, I don't get as many opportunities to play as I would like to. Uh, and I am I imagine probably quite similarly to, to yourself, I prefer running the game. Mm -hmm. uh, but that doesn't mean I don't enjoy playing. And I actually think being a player is, like, necessary to be a good 
GM in any game, really. Because yeah. once you've been in that player's seat, you can't really... You, until you've done that, you can't really understand what it is that makes a good GM. Because you you need to be able to think of the game from a player's perspective, right? Yeah. But, um, yeah, my favorite thing to play as... I love playing evil. So I'm kind of, but I'm kind of a dumbass, and I'm not very good at the whole deductive <laughs> reasoning thing. What I am quite good at is looking someone in the eye and telling whether or not they're lying to me. And when I'm on the other side of that fence, looking someone in the eye and convincing them that I'm not lying to them. Uh, so I'm, I much prefer characters and roles that 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 lean into my social uh, capabilities rather than my. Um, ma- mathematical ineptitudes. So I like being on the evil team because I like I like having to lie. I particularly like being characters that don't have a large amount of responsibility, mm-hmm. uh, and so that I can engage in the social side of things more than having to worry about whether or not I'm using my ability to the to its you know utmost capabilities. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Well, thank you to each and every one of you who submitted your favorite moments and memories from being around the clock tower. I very much appreciate it. Now, if you're curious and intrigued by the tours, the story that myself and Ben have woven about this amazing game, you might be wondering where you can get yourself a copy. Well, you'll just need to head over straight to bloodonthecocktower.com where you can pick up your own copy. It costs about $145 US, and I'm not sure what it currently is costing in pounds. What's, what, what's it at right now, Ben? Do you know? 145 dollars uh it's about it's about 110 pounds somewhere around about there perfect there you go around about there um but get your own copy it it's incredibly impressive you will you will very much grab the attention of all your board game and nerd friends asking what that is what it is because it is very impressive and cool um but let's say you have picked up your own copy of blood on the clock tower it's arrived and you're ready to run your own game or play in your own game. Ben, what tips or advice would you give to new Clock Tower players? Um, so the most important piece of advice that I would give to a new Clock Tower player is please, please, for the love of God, please run Trouble Brewing first. <laughs> it's a complicated game. There's a lot going on. This script is specifically designed to introduce storytellers and players to the core concepts of the game. So run Trouble Brewing. I promise you, you will have the best time if you run Trouble Brewing. And if you are the guy running the game, um, you, you're going to look at it and you're going to feel a little overwhelmed. But don't worry. Take all the time that you need to run the night phase follow the things that it says on the night sheet and the night sheet is literally a list of all the things that you could possibly have to do at night dependent on what characters are in play and as long as you take your time follow that night sheet uh, you won't you won't screw up because you can't if you follow the night sheet and your players won't mind if the night takes a long time they won't mind if they have to have their eyes closed for a few minutes they'll only mind if you've made a mistake that you can't undo so just take time and most importantly have fun because and this goes for anyone who's running any game, be it D and D, be it um, you know comparing a show for a bunch of comedians or performing with your band on stage. Uh, this holds true across all of those. If you're having a good time, the people watching you will have a good time too. It's fun to see people have fun, and they'll take they'll take your lead on what kind of tone is being set. So enjoy it. Have a good time. Love it. It's fun watching people have fun. I love it. Put that on a shirt. Sell it. <laughs> yeah. It's a good Go one. It. 
<laughs> but that is going to do it for another episode of here at RPG University. Ben, thank you so much for stopping by and talking. It was it was a lot of fun hearing about your experiences playing D&D and Blood and Cocktail and everything. I really appreciate it. Oh, pleasure's all mine. Thank you for having me. Of course. Where can people find you, though, online? Uh, what do you have cooking? Uh, go ahead and plug away your stuff. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm uh, twitter.com forward slash bungieman17. Uh, I've recently started up my own Twitch channel, uh, which is twitch.tv forward slash benburns with a, with a Z on the end. Uh, and I'm looking at kind of branching off into doing some possible RPG actual plays in the near future. I've got a few ideas. Uh, I'd quite like to use some pretty cool bits of software to make a really cinematic uh, one. But yeah, in the meantime, you can mostly find me on the Pandemonium Institute's official channels and the Blue on the Clock Tower official stuff because I'm always running Clock Tower every week and you can always come and uh, hang out with me while I run the game for some very entertaining people. Awesome, awesome stuff. Be sure to join up with uh clock towers patreon you can get access to a really cool online or like digital app version kind of thing of blood in the cock tower um looks really nice looks really fun um be sure to go and support the no rolls bar kickstarter for their season two escapades of blood in the clock tower which ben you will be reprising a role as storyteller correct hopefully if we if we can get the funding and it looks like we probably will yeah so go and support them uh with that kickstarter so you can see more awesome games and yeah just give it a shot it's if you like werewolf if you like town of salem you will no doubt no doubt fall in love with blood on the clock tower as well but of course thank you to each and every one of you who's listened today be sure to rate and review us on your preferred podcast service as i would really appreciate it if you have an rpg you would like us to feature on an episode tweet at underscore rpg university with the hashtag rpgu with your suggestion or you can share your own favorite rpgs and moments directly with me on twitter at professor rpg as always everybody stay safe stay healthy be kind to one another class dismissed